Great. Thank you, Cam. So Isaiah 58, uh, which, as Cam said, is found on page 1116. And it comes uh, just after a time when God has been talking about how he wants to bring his people back, but in contrast, there will be no peace for the wicked. So Isaiah 58. Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways, as if they are a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarrelling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them, and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your light would break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you'll call and the Lord will answer. You'll cry for help and he will say, here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with a pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You'll be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You'll be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honourable, and if you honour it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord and I'll cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Oh, well, thanks so much, Jeff. Um, now, it's, it does feel like a long time since I've been uh, preaching here. It's been quite a few weeks, actually. Um, I'm really thankful to Matt and uh, for the way he's taking us uh, through Isaiah so helpfully uh, over the past few weeks. Uh, and if you missed any of the sermons uh, from this series, I'd 
do recommend getting online and going back and listening uh, to sort of catch up on what we've missed because it's been a really helpful series. Um, I've really missed preaching. Uh, it really is a great joy and a great privilege uh, to open up and to lead us through God's Word. Um, but I have to say, it has been good to have a bit more time in my week to uh, catch up on lots of other things uh, that needed to happen, uh, like, you know, catching COVID. It's nice to have that ticked off the list finally. Um, it might not stand out uh, on the first read of Isaiah 58, but I really think this part of Isaiah takes us to one of the most important topics there is. Um, I don't think uh, this passage is about fasting. Um, I don't think this passage is about uh, charity or keeping the Sabbath. Um, I think Isaiah 58 is mostly about finding real joy. Now, is there anything more valuable to you than joy? Is there anything more sought after in our world than finding satisfying, lasting joy? Um, I take it that's uh, why every day billions of dollars, billions of dollars get spent around the world, not for food or shelter, um, but to try and buy a slice of joy, just get a taste of happiness. You think about advertising, the thing they're trying to sell is not usually a product or an experience. They're trying to sell joy. They're trying to sell us satisfaction. And my guess is that uh, that search for joy, that, that longing for it, is um, you know, that looking for a lasting and settled delight and peace in our life, no matter our situation. That search for joy is, I reckon, behind the rise in popularity of spirituality here in Australia. And not religion. Uh, we're becoming less uh, inclined to be part of a religious organisation, but certainly more spiritual, I think, uh, in the years that have gone, uh, and recent years. And a spiritual journey, really, it's a search for joy, isn't it? Now, I think Isaiah 58 gives us the right direction towards joy. Um, I think that's the promise there right at the end in verse 14. Uh, the promise there is to find your joy in the Lord. As we have a look at this passage together, I'm hoping it will be really helpful for, for Christians uh, to have great clarity, uh, to have great clarity and to be reminded and encouraged to keep going on the pathway that God has set before us that we might grow in our joy. Uh, for those of us who are here, uh, perhaps exploring Christianity, uh, maybe looking into these things uh, for the first time, uh, perhaps seeking for joy. Perhaps yourself, you yourself are looking uh, for the thing you're missing out on. Uh, my hope is that Isaiah 58 and the things we see here will keep you looking, uh, will keep you seeking that, on that path to know God and to know the joy that he really offers. And it really is like nothing else in this world. My plan today is to just take us through, uh, to start off with, the big ideas that Isaiah has for Israel. What Isaiah says to Israel, I don't think it's too complicated. Um, what is a bit trickier though, and what I found tough this week, is working out what it means for us. Because we are not Israel. And so I think we need to be, in this passage, like many, be very careful not to simply map what we see uh, instructed to Israel directly onto our lives. Um, I'll do my best to kind of help us see the difference and the similarities between us and Israel and the sorts of things going on in this chapter. So let's look first at what Isaiah is instructing Israel. What, like, what's the problem? Uh, verse 1, Isaiah is told to you know, yell at the top of his lungs, there's a problem. What is it? Well, the way Israel sees the problem is that they're doing all these religious things. They are seeking after God. They are looking for his favour and his help. And refreshing, at least, in Isaiah to see they're not looking, after, looking for idols to help them. That's a nice change, at least. They are at least seeking God. They want him to be near to them. And they, I guess, want him to bless them. 
uh, and to give that joy that always comes when Israel meet in the presence of God. But the Israelites are scratching their heads and trying to work out why God is not taking any notice of them. They are even fasting. Now, how serious do you have to be about showing your conviction uh, and your sincere to go without food for ages? Like, not eating food. That's pretty serious devotion, isn't it? That, that's a pretty hard uh, hurdle for me to get over, I reckon. Like, the Israelites are thinking, God should be really impressed. Look at the fasting we're doing, but he's, he's not answering our prayers. What's going on? But, as verse uh, 3 shows, Israel complain. Um, yeah, Israel can't just conclude, God's really let us down. He's not listening. That's how Israel sees the problem. God sees it differently. As far as God sees it, uh, they are a nation that's asking for help, but verse 2, it's as if they were a nation that does what is right. They're asking as if they were a nation that does, right, does what is right. Now, Aaron very helpfully brought out a number of these ideas in the kids' talk, but yeah, just imagine uh, that small child being caught doing the wrong thing. They pretend it wasn't them that did it. They act as if they didn't use that texture to draw on the wall. They innocently pretend there's nothing to see here, and then they ask, with all sincerity and uh, respect to you as a parent, if they can have some ice cream now. No, that's not how this works. The problem, as God sees it, is their fasting is just a religious performance. They're wearing sackcloth, they're humbling themselves, yes, you know, that's fine, but they're completely failing to love their neighbour. They're not feeding the hungry, they're not clothing the naked, they don't even think twice about exploiting their workers. In verse 4, you see they get into a fist fight after their very spiritual day of, of reflective fasting and meditating, they end up fighting. To be fair, I reckon if I went without food for a day or two, I'd probably be most likely to get into a fight as well. But there's a great irony here, isn't there, that Isaiah points out at the end of verse 3. They're fasting, that is, they're denying themselves food, they're going without. But the irony is, while they're doing that, while they deny themselves food, they do whatever they want in the rest of their life. They don't lift a finger to help someone else, especially if it inconveniences them. They deny themselves nothing, actually, even while they're fasting. It's a bit absurd to then think that God would be impressed. Uh, to make it worse for Israel, it's actually not like God is springing these ideas on them, you know, novel ideas like looking after the poor. It's not the first time God's instructed them to do this. This is not new news for Israel. Baked into their covenant with God is God's command to care for the poor, to look after the orphan and the widow, to look after the refugee and the slave. Israel should know better. They should know better than to think God wouldn't mind if they don't feed the poor. God's made it clear time and time again he really cares about justice in their nation and God has a great heart for those who are on the margins. Of course, he's not that impressed by their fasting as they fail to care for those that God really cares about. Which, by the way, I think gives us great insight and a reminder of how much God loves uh, everyone but his great heart for those who are vulnerable, for those who are poor. He's such a kind God, isn't he? He cares for those that no one else seems to. He lifts up the humble and he shows mercy to those in need. He's a good God. But Israel, and it seems especially those who have money and some sort of influence here, they've completely failed to love their neighbour. They simply did as they pleased. Their fasting is self-focused and self-interest and about self-interest. Love, though, 
Love is not about the self, is it? Love is about the other. Love is outward-looking. It, it always involves, to some degree, denying ourselves for the sake of someone else. But Israel don't do that. So that's the first problem. They're failing to love their neighbour. The second problem, verse 13, uh, they also seem to be doing as they please on the Sabbath. Instead of honouring and delighting in God, and on, on the one day of the week, he instructed them to put aside their commercial and material interests, just put it aside, and enjoy a relationship with me, your creator. Love me. Well, they haven't been doing that either. They haven't been honouring God on the Sabbath. Israel here in chapter 58, they're, they're shouting out, sorry, Isaiah's shouting out to Israel, who are acting as if they are doing all the right things, but very clearly... They have failed miserably at loving their neighbour and they failed very obviously to love God by breaking his Sabbath. Loving your neighbour, loving God, even Jesus' opponents agreed they are the two most important commands from God. The thing is, there is a consequence, there is a result from ignoring God's commands. He is our creator. He has designed us to live in a particular way and he instructs us in that way. When we ignore God's commands, his instructions, it's not that we're just uh, sinning against him, we're also missing out. We miss out when we don't listen to God. Because we don't find the joy that comes from living as we were designed to live, living as God intends us to. And so religion that is on our terms, like the kind of religion that Israel are practicing here, Religion that's designed to suit us and to not listen to God, it gets people nowhere on the pathway to God and the pathway to joy. So for Israel, they fail to listen. They refuse to deny themselves. They don't love their neighbour. They don't love God. They're seeking joy on their own terms. And so they miss out on God's abundant blessing. I reckon that's a huge tragedy uh, for, any, for anyone in any time. But what strikes me in this passage and throughout the whole Bible is it's not like God is stingy. It's not like God doesn't want to pour out joy. He does. God loves to pour out good things. Just have a look there in verses 8 to 12 in your Bible and just count the, the many ways God wants to be good and to bless Israel. So verses 8 to 12, if you sort of scan through, you see he'll give them light in darkness. He'll heal them. He'll guard them. He'll give them righteousness and his glory just shining on them. Verse 9, he'll be with them. He'll be present, relating with them answering every request for help. And I love verse 11. Let me read it out. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. God longs to be present with Israel. He longs to be in relationship with them, blessing them, giving them good things, to fill them with a wisdom that helps them navigate a complicated world. God wants to do all these good things, to, to nourish their souls, to give them joy, if only his people would listen. Now, I reckon that's roughly Isaiah's message to Israel here. I think I've sort of summed up roughly what's going on. But like I said, the tricky thing I reckon is working out, well, what do we do with that as Christians? We're not Israel, uh, but there are some very crucial things in this chapter for us to grasp and come to terms with. First of all, and this is always true, God is always God. Uh, he's the same God of Isaiah 58 as he is today. He has the same character, uh, the same inclination to be kind and generous, and the same desire to lead us into joy. Uh, I think what's different for Christians, though, 
It's not that God intends that he wants to bless us one day as Christians. It's that he already has. It's not that God longs to be with us. It's that by his spirit, because of Jesus, God already is present with us. True, there is far more we still look forward to as Christians, but God's unwavering favour towards us is different. We have faith in Jesus, and that means it doesn't matter how much we observe or don't observe the Sabbath or how well we fast or don't, God is with us and God is blessing us. He's not impressed by how much or how little we give to charity. God has already forgiven our sins. He has already paved the way for us to have joy and to have a relationship with him. Now, work us through in a little bit more detail in a moment. But the big idea is it's the work of Jesus that puts us in good standing with God. Not the things we do, not how much we give. It's not our works at all. And that changes everything. That changes everything for how we uh, expect to encounter joy and how to live as God's people. I'll come back to that. Um, I think it's also important to see for the Christian in this passage that we just don't get to set out what spirituality uh, looks like for us. We don't get to set the agenda. I mean, we can try to um, sort of do that. But I guess the point of this chapter is we, we don't find joy if we do religion or spirituality on our own terms and ignore God. Just like for Israel... God has spoken very clearly about how we are to relate to him and how we are to relate to our neighbour. Just to pick up a few um, thoughts to illustrate that point, I guess. Um, I think it's very fashionable in Australia, like I said, uh, it's fashionable and popular to be spiritual, but not religious. I think it's true for lots of people who would say that they're Christian, uh, they identify as people of faith in Jesus, but for them, spirituality and their religion is is a private thing. It's not something to be shared or uh, to, to be uh, incorporated in a body like a church. So you would have heard that, the line many times, um, you, don't need to be, uh, you don't need to go to church to be a Christian. I think for a lot of people in Australia, that seems to be uh, their mantra almost. You can be a Christian, not have to go to church. Now, technically, I suppose that's kind of true if you're just you know, using definitions. But that kind of approach to a do-it-yourself spirituality where you get to choose and do your own thing on your own terms... It's actually not at all what the Bible has to say. It's not what God teaches us. Christians are to belong to a local church, just like this one. Yes, faith is a personal thing, but it cannot be only personal. Our faith is a corporate thing. As soon as we put our trust in Jesus, we're brought into his family. We're together in this. And Christians who are part of a church like this, uh, with all its ups and downs, We do find that joy and privilege, don't we, of belonging to a community that's driven by grace, unlike every other community around us. We get to grow together in joy as together we get to be more like Jesus. We have joy as we see others grow up in their faith. We see others coming to faith for the first time. What great joy that is. And we get to be with each other, sharing the ups and downs of life as lives are genuinely transformed. What joy it is to belong to the family of God's people. That is, those who think they don't need to go to church, as God has told us, they're missing out. They're missing out on joy. Another popular, I think, uh, approach to the Christian faith here in Australia, in, in many churches, is, I think, collapsing all the things God tells us to do and instructs us in to just uh, focusing on caring for the poor, 
uh, advocating for justice in our community, and trying really hard to never say anything offensive. I think I was trying to sum up a number of um, yeah, approaches to, to uh, church communication I've seen in many uh, parts of Adelaide and beyond. That seems to be a collapsing in just a few narrow areas. Now, often these churches are involved in all sorts of good and important things, but they're missing out. They're missing out. They're missing out on the richness of joy that comes from being a church that takes on the whole counsel of God, taking serious and being obedient to all that God says, not just the bits we like. They miss out on the joy of being a church that knows it's the gospel and only the gospel that really transforms life now and into eternity and experiencing that joy of seeing lives transformed. I guess my point is, and I think Isaiah 58 points us in this direction, Christianity is not a case as do as you please. God has instructed us. He has given us many good things to do. And if we don't listen, if we don't obey, we're just missing out on the great joy he has in store for us. He loves to give us. Now, after saying all that, I just want to be clear. I hope I'm not trying to, it doesn't sound like I'm trying to paint a picture of belonging to a church and following Jesus is you know, always rainbows and lollipops. Um, it's all about being healthy, wealthy, and wise. That's, that's not what I'm trying to say. Uh, we do know that uh, life will still have its, uh, its great trials. But what we do have is what everyone else in the world is desperately looking for. We have a relationship with our, with our Creator. And as we are seeking, trying to obey him and follow him, we get to grow in that relationship. As we increasingly listen to and respond to God's words, we are increasingly transformed to live, to be increasingly free from the power of sin. I think when we do that, we're increasingly people who become enriched. We're living lives more as our creator intended and designed us to. And so we find the joy and the peace that comes from knowing God. So if you, you know, find yourself in a, a flat spot as a Christian, as a spiritual dry, uh, dry spell, or perhaps if you've uh, found yourself looking back to a younger and more enthusiastic version of your Christian self, uh, just perhaps wondering or being discouraged if you've kind of grown as much as you're going to, I want to say, far from it. God has so much in store for each of us. It's a phrase I've stolen from elsewhere, but I think I'll keep using I want to keep encouraging us that our best days with Jesus are always ahead of us. Our best days with Jesus are always ahead of us, not behind us, because he's going to keep growing us into his joy and into relationship with him. We all have growing to do, and we have all the more joy awaiting for us as we grow into it. But I want to be very clear on this. It's not just as simple as being more obedient and working hard at loving our neighbour, um, Let me be very clear, that's not the pathway God sets out for us, not just simple obedience. Uh, If that was the case, we'd be in exactly the same position as Israel, wouldn't we? Working hard to impress God and then wondering why it just feels like a chore all the time. What's so critical to pick up is what Aaron explained so well. It's actually all about what God has already done for us. It's all about what God has already done for us. If you've been here for uh, most of our Isaiah series or reading along uh, daily reading notes, um, you may remember Isaiah in the last few chapters has introduced a kind of a mysterious servant figure. Uh, He comes to do what Israel failed to do. The servant picks up Israel's job because Israel failed. Israel was supposed to be, among other things, a nation that listened to God and loved people well, so well, uh, that the nation would be overflowing with rich blessing and the other nations would also be blessed. The whole world was supposed to be blessed through Israel. 
But they couldn't do it. They didn't do it. They kept failing. Sin, time and time again, got in the way, tangling them up and making a mess. So Isaiah here paints this picture of this mysterious servant who has a job that Israel used to have, to serve God faithfully, uh, to be righteous and to even pay for the sins of others, and to somehow fix God's people once and for all so that their sins wouldn't keep tangling us up all the time, and to bring great blessing to all the nations. And yes, you're right, it's Jesus, well done. Uh, Jesus is the servant, Isaiah points us to. But how does knowing Jesus... How does knowing Jesus help us respond well to Isaiah 58? If you have your Bibles handy there, I'd encourage you to keep a thumb in Isaiah 58 or you need a little ribbon uh, and turn over to Luke 4. Uh, Luke chapter 4 is on uh, page 1,563. Luke 4 on page 1,563. I'm going to read from verse 18 where the context is um, Jesus has burst into the scene. He's just suddenly um, come from nowhere almost. Uh, And basically, the first thing he does is go around uh, teaching people the Bible in synagogues. So Luke 4, 18, Jesus is in the synagogue in his hometown, and he reads from Isaiah. Uh, It's on the screen as well, I think. Uh, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Uh, Jesus then goes on to say, Look, basically today, this is fulfilled. I'm here now, and this is the job I've come to do. Israel's job, I'm going to do it. Now, I point this out because uh, Luke, quoting Jesus, uh, quoting Isaiah, actually mashes a few parts of Isaiah together. It's kind of interesting. Um, most of that quote that uh, you're looking at there is from Isaiah chapter 61, but one line comes from Isaiah 58. I've underlined it on the screen there, and I think there's a little footnote in the Black Bible. Uh, not all the Bibles have that footnote, but anyway. I think what Jesus is saying is, as we read Isaiah 58, he's including that, all of that, as part of his job. Now, I point this out because as you keep reading through Luke and the other Gospels, yes, Jesus heals the blind, as he says he would. He does hang out with and bless the poor people. He feeds the hungry quite spectacularly. It's kind of striking, perhaps, though, that Jesus doesn't really set slaves or prisoners free. Not literally, at least. In fact, what Luke and what other gospel writers go on to show is what Jesus is doing as he fulfills Isaiah is far bigger than that. Jesus sets out to heal spiritual blindness. He himself is the bread of heaven. Yes, he feeds the hungry, but he's feeding and nourishing our hungry souls with the words of eternal life. Yes, he does release captives, actually. He releases us from the fear of death and judgment. And he sets free all those who are oppressed by being enslaved to sin. See, what Israel were too selfish to do literally, you know, feeding the poor, clothing the naked, in Isaiah 58, Jesus, the servant of God, does for us, for me and you. Especially on the, in his work on the cross, Jesus sets us free. We were the captives he's released. We no longer have the, we're released from the oppressive fear of judgment. Jesus breaks every yoke that traps, uh, that traps us in selfishness and hostility to God. He clothes us. He gives us royal robes as we join his family. Jesus shelters us, uh, not just from the storms of life, but more than that. He shelters us on the day of judgment from a holy, holy God. These are great things, aren't they? 
Praise Jesus. It's when we realize that we're set free, that our hearts have been made new by God's Spirit. It's only then that we can do what Israel couldn't. That is, the thing that Isaiah blames them for doing as they please, uh, sorry, the thing that Isaiah blames them for is doing whatever they want. Uh, They were about themselves, their priorities, their comfort, their welfare. They're inward focused. And they couldn't find the joy then that comes from living as God intended. If you just flick back to Isaiah 58, uh, verse 10, there's this wonderful uh, urging from God. Isaiah 58, verse 10. Spend your help, spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and to satisfy the needs of your oppressed. Spend yourself. What a phrase. Spend yourself to find joy. When you reflect on that further, you realize that's so counterintuitive. Why would I spend myself to find joy? That's not how our world teaches us to get happy. It's about um, helping others give things to me that makes me happy. But God instructs us to do otherwise. We don't find joy when we focus on ourselves, when we feed our desires, but when we love God and we give ourselves in his service and in the service to others. Israel couldn't manage that, actually, because uh, they didn't have the heart change that was required. But Jesus' grace and by the Holy Spirit genuinely changes our hearts. He transforms us. He enables us to have hearts that aren't wrapped up in ourselves. Now, Jesus makes this same point himself over in Luke 17. Um, It's up on the screen for us. Uh, Jesus tells us a similar kind of idea. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life will preserve it. Now, there's a paradox if you've ever seen one, but it's, it's, again, you reflect on these things. What is he talking about? It seems to me that if we hold on to ourselves as the highest priority, then we will lose everything. But if, as God intends, we do give our lives up, if we spend ourselves in God's service and for the sake of others as we love, if we really love sacrificially, then we're really alive, we're really living And we're really living in the joy of God. Again, let's be careful not to get this the wrong way around. We can't just go and squeeze out love by sheer willpower. Spend ourselves in a really stoic and dutiful kind of but secretly bitter kind of way. You can imagine someone going and volunteering every soup kitchen they could and giving all our money to the poor in the hope that would make us right with God and maybe one day make us fulfilled. It's the wrong way around. It's when we know the grace of God, when we delight in God and what he's done for us, when we just enjoy the relationship we have with him, it just follows, doesn't it? That from there we are generous, that we are kind, that we love justice. Because those things are the fruit of a changed heart, the fruit that comes from delighting in God's grace. And that's why all through history it's the Christians who have become the famous people for caring for the poor. It was the Christians who invented hospitals and charities and education for the poor, orphanages, universities. The Christians were key to ending the Atlantic slave trade and so on. All that is the fruit that comes from knowing the grace of God, that Jesus spent himself for me. I want to say how good it is to be part of a church where it's clear that we have this, we've we've got this. We're not perfect, of course, we're all growing Uh, But it's so clear that God's grace is central in the lives of those who come to this church. 
even in our short history over you know, seven or so months, whatever it is, um, I think there's so many countless examples of the great care and concern people have shown for each other. Um, every week, uh, I'm sure you realise this, every week there are people here at 8am, Sunday morning, in the middle of winter, getting things ready. They're not doing me a favour, they're not doing it because uh, they're trying to earn brownie points, but these are people who know God's grace and they come to serve, joyfully. Uh, we have youth leaders here who uh, very joyfully uh, put aside time and energy to invest in our youth. They're excited by the opportunity to serve their younger brothers and sisters that they deny themselves at a relaxed Sunday afternoon because they're not thinking about you know, the joy they could gather to themselves. They're thinking first about how to give out. And so they find great joy as they serve our youth. It's wonderful. We've heard from some uni students today who have bravely uh, made it known to their classmates and their campus that they stand with and for Jesus in a place that's so often hostile to Christians. We heard just so briefly the joy it was for them because they weren't thinking first of themselves and their own popularity. They're just delighted in knowing the freedom they have in Christ, what he's won for us, and wanting to share it with others and found great joy as they did that. I think as well about the, uh, the grace-driven financial generosity here at Tonsley. Uh, we set up as a new church, plenty of expenses, but there were so many examples of people being so, so generous. Not impressing anyone, because at the end of the day, no one's actually going to know who was generous or who wasn't. Only God does. And it certainly doesn't happen if we're trying to prove something to God, I don't think. Generosity comes when we already know the great joy of the Lord already. In generosity, we know there is great joy, isn't there? I came across a, a profound thought about generosity this week, which I've never really thought about before, but I think it's very true. Uh, here's a thought. No one has ever really regretted being generous. No one has ever really regretted being generous. That's what really struck me this week. I mean, that's spot on, isn't it? It can be hard initially to sort of build yourself up to be generous, but once you've done something, given something good to others, well, you find joy, don't you? Because we're not focusing on ourselves. Actually, one of my uh, favourite stories so far here at Tonsley, uh, many of you know Susanna, who runs our, uh, her kids' program. She volunteers a huge amount of time and energy uh, every week, uh, and every week is in the kids' program. Um, someone who knows God's grace uh, and uh, clearly uh, has great love for Susanna, um, realised uh, Susanna as a new mother, uh, just before Mother's Day, would have otherwise been out in the kids' ministry uh, running that. So this person approached Susanna and said, hey, look, you're in kids every single week. How about for Mother's Day... I'll, I'll take care of things, and you go out and sit with your family. What a great and thoughtful service to Susanna. From someone who clearly knows the grace of God and is seeking to bless others. There's, there's far, far more stories, and you'll know uh, just as many as I do, I'm sure, about the ways that people are serving and loving one another because we know the grace of God. We need that, don't we, to change our hearts as we focus on that and the salvation that Jesus has won for us what great joy we find as the people of God. Of course, we have plenty to grow in, and we have plenty of joy still before us as we do that. So, let me lead us in prayer. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful for the way that you have loved us, for the freedom that you have won for us, and uh, the pathway of joy you've set for us. We thank you for the taste of joy we have now, and even more so for the joy you have set before us into eternity. Please continue the great work you have already started in us. Please keep drawing us with fascination and awe at your mercy and your love and your grace. 
So please keep each one of us growing in our obedience and in our holiness, in the ways we love and serve others, and in the way we deny ourselves and our own desires. In all these things, we pray you would grow us in our joy. And so help us, please, bear a lot of fruit for your glory. Amen.